Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activist empowerment talk radio, speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know? Don't tell me, Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home! Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. And good evening. Thank you for being with us as we begin the 2012 season of Our Common Ground. We're so pleased to have you as part of the family of this listenership. I'm Janice Graham, and uh, I do want to welcome all of you and wish you enough in this new and hopefully empowering season of Our Common Ground. We have been on the air full-time for 20 years, and we have been broadcasting bold and brave and hope that we will continue to have you join us as we continue this journey uh, in broadcast uh, land. And we want to those of you who are listening to know that you can join our chat room at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. There is always a robust and important discussion going on during our broadcast. Um, The other thing that we want you to know as we approach the National King Day for 2012, that our common ground is going to be kicking off a year campaign, Living Like a King. We're asking our listeners and our supporters to live like a king all through the year. And that is in the shadow and the legacy and the spirit of the life of Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King. We hope that you are preparing your children and the people who are close to you and your families and community to celebrate the memory and the work 
of Dr. King on this King Day. We'll be telling you more about that during this broadcast. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are going to have two guests. Our first guest in page one is Alelia Bundles. He is author, journalist, archivist, and she was recently elected as the chair and president of the board of directors of the Foundation for the National Archives. In our second page, joining us will be Edward Wyckoff Williams. He is an author, columnist, political and economic analyst for MSNBC and NBC Universal, and he is also a former investment banker. Recently and also featured uh, at theroot.com, which is the Washington Post, I'm sorry, which is the um, news <clears throat> website um, featuring his political column, Elevating the Dialogue. Uh, it's featured on NBC's thegrio.com and the Washington Post online magazine, The Root. His work covers a diverse range of topics from health care and education reform, gay and minority rights, international affairs, and President Barack Obama. We'll be discussing with him his latest piece, which was featured on the cover of Slate Magazine this week, as well as The Root, exploring the GOP's food stamp fallacy, and we hope that you will stay with us for both of our pages. We're going to get started, and um, we welcome you once again, and thank you so very much for being with us as we launch this 2012 season. Coming up on this first hour, author, journalist, archivist, uh, a diverse and dynamic woman, Alelia Bundles. Stay tuned. Madam Walker was a great entrepreneur. She was a master at marketing. She was a pioneer of the modern hair care and cosmetics industry. She trained thousands of African-American women to sell her products and to be her sales agents. This army of financially independent women who otherwise would have been sharecroppers and maids and laundresses my real introduction to Madam Walker as a child was in everyday kinds of ways. The silverware that we used every day had her monogram on it. When I started really doing my research on her, I began to discover other things about her. She also was very much a philanthropist, a political activist, an anti-lynching activist, a patron of the arts. I was able to find some things actually at the National Archives. When I first got here, I really didn't know what I was going to find. It was, well, voila. I went through Southern Claims Commission papers and in fact found that R.W. Burney, the owner of the plantation where Madam Walker was born and where her parents had been slaves, uh, had in fact filed to get reimbursed for timber that had been cut down on his land. Sherman uh, and Grant had used that plantation as a staging area for the Union Army as they were trying to take over Vicksburg, which the Confederacy controlled. So I found also the fact that a hospital was on the plantation. But to actually be able to look at the reports from the hospital and to see how many people had died and who was sick and what the weather was like. It made the, the plantation come alive for me. There's also this very interesting document um, 
January 29, 1864, a number of people who were sick, who were in the Freedmen's Camp. So there must have been a Freedmen's Camp in addition to the Camp for the Soldiers, and it lists the names of the freed persons who were sick. Riley, age one, Lucy Lemney, age 35, James Norton, 56, Carolyn Youngblood, 33, um, Felina, no last name, five. It gave me sort of an emotional connection to it, to be able to touch the papers. For my family, there was people think, oh, you know, they're famous and you can find out a lot about them. Yes, I can find out a lot about them after they became famous, but the first 38 years of her life, it was really just digging and digging and digging and not giving up in an amazing way. A little bit of a document here and a little bit of a document there, you can really pull together the story. One of the biggest surprises to me, more, more uh, National Archives records, uh, there were War Department records that showed that she had been spied upon by a black spy who was working for the War Department, who was looking for what they called subversive Negroes. They basically wanted civil rights, and so they were rocking the boat. So I, I loved that discovery. One of the wonderful things about the way the American government collected records through the years is that everybody's family is in the National Archives. As a great-great-granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, Alilia Bundles always knew the story and legacy of Madam C.J. Walker was her story to tell, and she tells it with passion and integrity. Former broadcaster and broadcast executive, author, journalist, and archivist, she is the executive director of the Madam C.J. Walker Family Collection. Recently, she was appointed as the chair and president of the National Archives Foundation. She's a graduate of Radcliffe College and is a member of the Board of Trustees of Columbia University. She's the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. And we are pleased to have Aurelia Bundles with us at our common ground tonight. Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, and with us tonight is her great-great-granddaughter and the author, Alelia Bundles. Alelia, thanks so much for joining us here at Our Common Ground. My pleasure. So glad to be with you. Well, I am just um, elated that you are. See, uh, your great-great-grandmother has always been, as a student of business, one of the models uh, for all successes in business. Uh, as as I found her, uh, I discovered her when I was a very young child. Mm-hmm. But uh, as I found her in my adult life studying business, I held her up as a model. And your book certainly lays out all of the reasons uh, why. Uh, she would be both a model for black women as well as as a model for um, the early infrastructure for people who 
wanted to write business plans and understand the connection between vision and 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 building a business. So uh, thank you very much for uh, on. <clears throat> On her own ground, the life and times of Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, tell tell us and share with us what your journey was has been like as both a business person. You were a broadcast executive, um, bringing the kind of legacy that you bring uh, from uh, your family into your own professional life. You know, I'm very fortunate that I grew up with uh, parents who were entrepreneurs who encouraged me to follow my own professional dreams. Both of my parents worked in the hair care industry. Uh, my mother was uh, part of the Walker family. My dad was actually president of a another black hair care company called Summit Laboratories when I was growing up. And during the 1950s and 60s, that was really the more successful company the real heyday of the walker company had been prior to that and it was you know somewhat in decline and my real passion was writing and my parents encouraged me to do that to follow my dreams and i became a journalist as you mentioned i had a a nice long career as a producer um with nbc news and then as a producer and an, and an executive at abc news but all the while, this story of Madam Walker was such a powerful story. I'd become a storyteller as a journalist. And when I was in graduate school at Columbia in journalism, uh, Phyllis Garland, who was the only black woman tenured faculty member, insisted that I begin to really write seriously about Madam Walker. So that began my formal journey of telling her story, and that's resulted in a young adult book, uh, the more comprehensive biography of Madam Walker on her own ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, and now I am at work on a biography of her daughter, my namesake, Alelia Walker, who Langston Hughes called the joy goddess of Harlem's 1920s. Because of her her parties and her the dark parties. Yes. <laughs> you know, I love that era. I absolutely yes. love that era. And uh, I must tell you that uh, as a child, um, for reasons that I, I'm not sure of, my mother talked about your great-great-great-grandmother uh, a lot mm. um, in, in, her segregated, in the segregated schools where she was a principal. Uh, during Black History, I can remember my mother was kind of like the expert on C.J. Walker and and Ida B. Wells and some other women, and that's where I first heard this story when I was I think I was a fifth grader when I really kind of got that this was something really big. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and you when you mention Ida B. Wells Barnett, um, Madam Walker and Ida B. Wells, as you know, were contemporaries and uh, women who had very different backgrounds, well, not very, very different backgrounds. They both were from Louisiana, Mississippi area. But Ida B. Wells became a journalist and was very political and had had the um, you know, good fortune to have had a formal education when she was still young. And Madam Walker was still um, a washerwoman for almost the first four decades of her life. 
but eventually the two women found common cause in mm-hmm. their um, interest and in, in involvement in the anti-lynching movement. And I'm really happy to say that uh, one of Ida B. Wells's great-granddaughters, Michelle Duster, and I have found common cause and have wow. um, done, we do um, panels and speeches together. So it's really, uh, you know, great uh, a great serendipity to find that these um, subsequent generations have connected with each other. Mm-hmm. You know, many people, until you read the bi- the biographies uh, of yeah, and really delve into the history, really don't understand how the depth of the experiences that a woman like C.J. Walker, Madam C.J. Walker would have journeyed um of, you know people like tend to um look at the end result that she was one of the very few wealthy blacks in this country with true wealth um but they don't look at how she got there and the ways in which her life might have had another kind of turn. And it really was the essential of what makes the difference between success and non-success, and that was that she had a mission, that she had a purpose, and her purpose really was her daughter. So family is at the core of of, of the entire Walker story. Well, absolutely. I mean, she really she she was born um in 1867 on uh, the same plantation where her parents had been slaves. And by the time she was 7 years old, both of them had died. She married at a very young age as a as a teenager and had her only daughter and then was widowed when she was 20. Um and was a washerwoman for the next couple of decades. But she, the the journey for her was to try to make her child's life better, to make sure that her daughter got an education, which is uh, forever will be the uh, the journey and the aspiration of parents to always try to improve things for the next generation. So that really was her uh, starting mission. And then I think over time, uh, as she began to become successful and to become a self-educated woman, and she could see as she trained these thousands of agents uh, in her hair care system that her mission then expanded, and it became a mission to improve the lives of African-American women, to help them become financially independent, and then to improve the lives of African-Americans in general through supporting education, through um, being a philanthropist who uh, underwrote... all kinds of activities for the YMCA, for the NAACP, and really to make a difference. In 1917, the year before Mary Kay was born, Madam okay. Walker had her first convention of her sales agents, and 200 black women came from all over the country uh, telling their stories about how they'd been able to raise money to buy homes and educate their children. She gave prizes at her convention, just like Mary Kay to the women who'd sold the most products and brought in the most new agents, but she also gave prizes to the women who contributed the most charity in their communities and who were involved in political activities. So her mission evolved over time, but of course always her daughter was her heart. 
Olivia, you know, you, you make the point that is always at the center when I think of her, and that is that she really was the founder of the concept of multi, um, multi-level marketing. Yes, she certainly was uh, was one of the people during that early 20th century era when direct sales was getting started. I can't say she was the founder. Um, there were many people who were working in that arena, but she certainly was a pioneer, and she certainly was one of the people who expanded it among women uh, and among African Americans. Well, I, I certainly... Um, I want to give her credit for that because I think that in the same way that um, the Mary Kay products and and the uh, brush, Fuller Brush Company That's right. <laughs> uh, carried on, but I think that she had a sense, and I've read three, bo- three books about her stories and, and two major biographies, yours, uh, which I so thoroughly enjoyed and which you wrote with such integrity on her own ground, and uh, The Black Rose, which I thoroughly enjoyed and shared uh, with a number of young people because I thought it was so important for people to really understand that it was more than the product. It was the process of building the business that she should have a great deal of credit in, 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 in our history uh, about empowering those who, I mean, using people to empower the business as well as as being an, a force of empowerment in the community. Yeah, but absolutely, one of the things, absolutely. One of the things that strikes me is that she was a woman who understood quality. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that, and I want to get your response to it, because even as a washerwoman, uh, when she was very young, uh, she looked at what the best washerwomen, the people who were really making good money being washerwomen, what they were doing and what process they were using. And when she moved on to Indianapolis, I believe, or St. Louis, she used that process to become the number uh, 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 a quality uh, laundryist that was sought after by the people, by her clients. Right. Well, you know, let me let me do do one little thing here and just sort of make a, you know, distinguish between the two books. Um, you know, my book, On Her Own Ground, is a nonfiction book, and it's based on um, documentation yes. and existing records. The Black Rose is fiction. And so yes. there are many things in there that Tanana Reeve do actually – you know, made up to make the story flow because it's a novel. So you can't take the, you know, the things about the laundry, the, Those that's not actually the true story of Madam Walker. But mm-hmm. this, that mm-hmm. book does help people get a flavor of Madam Walker's life, but, but that's not really the documented story of her life. So yeah. it is true that she worked to be the best that she could be as a washerwoman, but you can't take that, you can't take the black rose at face value. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. but you know, but if people enjoy the story, that's that's great. Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, but yes, quality was always very important to her, and 
that's one of the things that she would tell her sales agents that you you know one one of the people would always ask her the secret to success and of course that's the kind of question there is no secret to success she would say to them but it's all these things it's the process it's all of the things and first of all you have to have an excellent product you have to have a high quality product you have to have quality control and then you have to be able to promote that product you know, I've actually, I would just share with you, I've had a really very interesting 48 hours in, in in New York and then in Wilmington, Delaware this morning. You know, usually now that I am not working in my, you know, former corporate life as a producer and executive, I'm, I write books. And so most of my days are spent in front of the computer trying to fashion interesting sentences. But for the last 48 hours, I've had the real privilege and opportunity to be with some African-American women entrepreneurs and to to listen to them talk about developing their businesses. I spent uh, Thursday afternoon with a woman named Ella Gorgla. I mean, part of the joy for me about Madam Walker's story is that I get to talk about what's happening now with black women entrepreneurs. But Ella Gorgla started a website called iEla, and it's i-ella.com, that she describes as kind of a cross between eBay and guilt.com, G-I-L-T, which is a high-fashion, high-end clothing um, website. And on her website, it's a sense of share your closet where women can swap, sell, and trade uh, clothing, and you can get, a, for instance, a Chanel bag that might be $2,500 for $450, and it, the clothing ranges from really, really high-end to everyday things. I listened to her talk about venture capitalists and raising money and how she now has 55,000 members of her site in less than a year. I then um, attended a small dinner with T.T. and Miko Branch, the founders of Miss Jessie's hair care products. And they have become extremely successful. They're in Target, and so they are making millions of dollars. And this morning, I had the privilege of being with Dr. Tracy Lynn at the launch of her new jewelry line. Uh, She has direct sales with eight 1,000 women partners who are selling her jewelry. There were 2,000 women in the Wilmington Convention Center this morning, and they were talking about the secret to success, and it is being on your game, having quality products, networking, and all of those things that it really still takes. Those things have not changed. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. You know, it's um, really interesting because um, I think, that kind of networking is what it takes um, to help, especially um, when you're talking about products that are are are, are kind of um, uh, luxury products, mm-hmm. and um, it takes that it takes that perseverance. And I know that I've been a a Jesse's user for many many years and I could never I never saw the product and now I'm hearing about it and people are talking about it all over the place and that's just a that's a wonderful thing but it does take that kind of 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 networking 
Right, um, and I think, you know, these are young women who really have a strong business savvy. They know how to how to control their own brand. They are involved, you know, as, as their attorney tells me, they sign every check. So they are really involved and know what's going on, and they care about the product and they care about their customers. So it's very interesting to watch this kind of success, and they have good advice. They have a great attorney. They have a great accountant. And these are things that, um, you know, sometimes I've I've heard other entrepreneurs say, oh, God, you know, I'm spending too much on the attorney. And my uh, deal, because I've experienced this, is if you don't pay now you pay later. It's better to have that attorney on the front end than on the back end. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and these are people, you know, uh, it, it's been a long time since I've been in business school, and it's been a long time since I've been in the private sector. But there has to be, as with your great-great-great-grandmother, an intuitiveness about what you're doing in your business and who you are serving. And that is something that you can't learn in business school. It's only by what you were doing this morning, sharing and networking and and having people help you build confidence about what your business is and how strong it is so that you can take that kind of power as you as you build the business. That's wonderful. That's, yeah, that's I, I, a- Absolutely, you're absolutely right, and and confidence in selling. One of the you know I listened to the one of the workshops yesterday evening at uh, at the Tracy Lynn conference, and these are things when you're selling that you know, but you sometimes need to be pumped up. But one one of the um, instructors was saying, you know, you you're you're in a you're in a show. Uh, people are walking by, you're standing behind your table, and people are afraid to approach you because you're not smiling. Get out in front of the table but because mm-hmm. you can't sell by, by you know, holding back. And I think that's true with anything that you're doing. You have to be really excellent. I actually was just on a panel this evening. Now, this, I've had a really busy days. <laughs> you really days, have. You know. But I was on a panel with Navarro Wright, who – is um, the head of uh, Interactive One and who was the person, if people saw the CNN Silicon Valley Black in America, he was the person who was advising the young people who had the startups in the in the house of the eight, uh, eight young African-American um, tech people. And we talked about, you know, his phrase during that show became, no whack demos. Meaning you cannot be do any presentations. You're pre, you have to be on your game twenty four seven, and that's you know we all know that. But sometimes yes. we think we can just sort of get by by sort of halfway doing it. You, if you really want to be successful, you can never let up. You can never rest. You're absolutely right. You're listening to our common ground, and our guest in this first segment um, is Alelia Bundles. She is the great great granddaughter of Madam C.J. Walker, the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. She is a journalist, a former broadcast uh, producer, and she is recently appointed as the chair and president of the Foundation of the National Archives. I I certainly want to talk to you about that and Uh, your appointment and what you're planning to do. But before we do, let's talk about your starting to 
to to write this book and do the research and what some of the treasures that you that you found significant as you put it all together well when i was doing the research for um on her own ground the the biography of madam walker there had never really been a uh, major biography of Madam Walker. I had written a young adult book that came out in 1991 that was an expansion of my master's paper that I had written at Columbia in the 70s. But to bump it up a huge notch to this really comprehensive biography on her own ground, I visited more than a dozen U.S. cities. Uh, I interviewed the people who were still living, the few people who were still living who had known Madam Walker and who had known Alelia Walker, a lot of the Harlem Renaissance folks who were still around, like Alberta Hunter and Richard Bruce Nugent and Dorothy West, and that was a total privilege to be able to talk with those elders and to get uh, their stories. And then I'm very fortunate that my family saved lots of letters and lots of business records, so I used those materials as uh, as the basis for the research for the book and, and really discovered, uh, to my delight, that Madam Walker was, um, in addition to being a pioneer of the hair care industry, was very much a philanthropist with black educational institutions, was very much a patron of the arts. And she and uh, her daughter... I think most people don't don't realize were really um quite interested in music and theater and and knew most of the major African American performers from that the early 20th century whether it was opera or ragtime they loved both so they were um acquainted with some of the black opera singers uh, as well as people like um Enrico Caruso but they also knew James Reese Europe, who's a name most people don't know now, but he would have been sort of the Quincy Jones of uh, the 1910s. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I, when I, when I was reading the book, um, and I've always been very intrigued by the clothing, women's clothing of that time and how black women during that era um, prepared their hair, you know, very elaborate and very meticulous. And, and and there is no way that you can think about that era without thinking about Madam C.J. Walker. When you, when you started doing your research outside of your family collection of letters, etc., and I fully understand, Alelia, where you're coming from when you say that uh, you were intrigued by uh, some of the things that you found. I have um, a letter that was written by my grandfather in 1921 uh, to my father, who was not yet married to my mother, um, giving him instruction about who he ought to be as a man in order to ask for my mother's um, hand in marriage. Mm. And it was so eloquent. Uh, he, he, he actually um, addressed the letter, My Dear Mr. Peak. Mm. <laughs> and I went... Okay, that's the kind of man and 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 um manhood 
uh, attitude that was during that time. Uh, and it was written uh, in his hand, and you could tell that it was from an inkwell, and it ha- and it was on letterhead um, that had been prepared. And I was thinking, a man of that age, having uh, fourteen uh, children, would have his own stationery, mm. and it was embossed. You know, I, I just, I, I just think that we had a flair. Uh, during that era that uh, seems to be waning. But it's something that I think that we ought to embrace, that we ought to have an appreciation for. And certainly your great-great-grandmother, especially uh, at the height of her career, um, imbued and cherished that kind of eloquence and elegance that um, makes that era so, so very rich. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there, you're right. There was an elegance, there was a respect, there was a dignity um, that uh, I think that was so much a part of being an African-American that people wanted to put their best foot forward. And I think today that sometimes people look at that and they sort of think, oh, that's so anachronistic and why would anybody go to all that trouble? But I still, I kind of miss that. I, I And I still, we still have that in our community, but there, the world has become much more casual um, and and we and many people have lost that and don't feel it's necessary. That is, it's interesting that I did very much notice that this morning with the women at Tracy Lynn Jewelry, that they call each other Ms. So-and-so, a Dr. So-and-so. Um, they are dressed up. They want to, they know that how you present yourself to the world um, in part determines how you are treated by the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and I think that one of the things that you're, your great-great-grandmother did in history, as I read this history, is to give voice to the entitlement of black women to embrace that kind of elegance, to see themselves beyond what had been defined for them, no matter what station in life, no matter what their profession in life had been and and women really emulated what she was trying to do. I was always intrigued by Villa Luaro mm-hmm. and 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 want to visit it now. I I I read that you had plans to spearhead an effort to convert for those of you who are not familiar with it. It is Madam Walker's mansion on Irvington on the Hudson. Mhm. And I had read that you uh, had some plans to transform it into a public museum. Tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. We are hoping to do that. We're, you know, we're fortunate. There are two National Historic Landmarks associated with Madam Walker's legacy. One is the Madam Walker Theater Center in Indianapolis, where I grew up, uh, and it's a beautiful flat beautiful flat iron block long building that was built in 1927 with african art deco designs in the theater just really a real gem 
And also Villa Loaro, as you said, Madam Walker's home in Irvington on Hudson, New York, just outside of Manhattan between Terrytown and Dobbs Ferry. And this this house was designed for her in 1917 by Vertner Tandy, who was one of the founders of Alpha Phi Alpha. And she built this house really as a, a way, she said, to show other African Americans their possibilities. And it's a beautiful, beautiful mansion. I'm working with the current owners to uh, try to see if we can't convert this to uh, a house museum, a, a public space, and it's been uh, in private hands really since the 1930s. And for the last oh, 18 years or so, owned by an African American couple who really have cherished it and have lovingly taken care of it. But we are exploring the kinds of things that you have to go through to get congressional approval to. Um, try to have it to become part of the National Park Service. So I would encourage anybody who's interested uh, in learning more about it to visit my website and uh, and send me a note. And it's Alelia Bundles, A-L-E-L-I-A-B-U-N-D-L-E-S dot com, Bundles dot com. And I'm also on on Facebook, and there we have a um, Alelia Bundles author page and uh, Madam Walker uh, and Alelia Walker Family Archives page on Facebook. Yeah, I, I, I think you've done a wonderful job of of putting up this legacy and uh, your own career and what you are doing in regard to both the book and to the family collection uh, on on the web. And I thank you so very much uh, for that, because uh, I I think that the effort and the hard work uh, to maintain all of these things are, um, um, are 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 evident in in the work that you have have done on behalf of your your family and of your great great grandmother and of your the family collection. Now let me ask you about. Uh, your plans about the museum. Uh, so the property right now is owned by other people outside of your family. Yes, yes, absolutely. The house was actually sold in 1932 uh, when Madam Walker died. She, in her will, she said that it would go to her daughter, Alelia, and that upon Alelia's death it would um, be willed to the NAACP. But Alelia Walker died in 1931 in the midst of the Depression, and the upkeep and the taxes of the house were really too expensive to for it to be taken over by the NAACP. And the you know houses were selling for a tenth of what they were worth. They sold the house, and, the, and some of the proceeds went to the NAACP. It was owned for several decades by a white women's organization called Companions of the Forest, uh, who used it as a retirement home. And then it was purchased by another family in the early 90s and then by the current owners, uh, as I say, about 18 years ago. But the current owners are African American. They are really, you know, they have enjoyed living in it. It's a place that they did um, a lot of renovation. But they now are ready to... um, you know houses can houses can sort of tie you down and they're 
they're at the stage where they want to do a lot of international traveling and uh, really want to see this uh, this home be something that is open to the public. Well, I certainly had thought as I read about it being built, oh, this is definitely a museum. Mm-hmm. Very. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, this, is, this is a very difficult time for house museums and for things of this nature. It's very, very expensive to maintain these houses. That was one of the things that Alelia Walker complained about a lot in in her letters. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, there's upkeep. There's, you know, there are people who, staff you have to have. You know, this is more than a notion. And uh, even some of the houses, um, some of the houses that are, so you know, on the Hudson River, Jay Gould's home recently was, temporarily closed uh, because of the upkeep and because the visitation at these places is down, where we know that this would be exciting, and it was a very popular attraction during 1998 when the house was opened as a designer show house to benefit the United Negro College Fund. The world is very different now. People can see a lot of things online that they used to only have, they could only go visit. So the business model for a place like that is just not quite as easy as people may think it is. It's a, you know, it's a great notion, but actually raising the money and getting people to supporting and being willing to, you know, to create an endowment, that's, you know, that's a, a bit of work. That's a difficult thing. Right. We're we're visiting tonight in this first page with Alelia uh, Bundles, author, journalist, arch- archivist, and she's the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, the biography that she wrote of her great-great-grandmother. And I thank you so much for spending the time with us uh, tonight. We're going to take your calls if you have questions. Um, our number is 347-838-9852. And when we come back from this break, we're going to be talking with Alelia Bundles about her new job <laughs> as the chair and president of the Foundation of the National Archives. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back. Make it real compared to what Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. And here's the children's part about it. MPR leans to the right. 
NPR lean, and you can ask, you know, and when I say the NPR lean to the right, I'm simply speaking about who they have on. They have twice as many conservatives on spewing bovine excrement than they do liberals with their chicken excrement. So at some point in time, you have to step back and you have to say, where's the job? What job bills have they introduced? The only thing Republicans have introduced is spending cuts that will cost 700,000 jobs. They are clearly trying to shut down our uh, economic growth and our recovery. You've got governors all over the country turning down jobs for speed rail. Now, regardless of how you feel about the speed rail, you mean the French can do it? Japan can do it, the Chinese can do it, Europe, they can do it over there, but we can't do it here? You know, where is this exceptionalism coming from when we are so um, mired in ignorance and mired in, 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 in just, just total obstruction? Listening to the best Pushback Politics, The Alpha Show. You're tuned in to Our Common Ground, where we celebrate all year long the life and legacy and the work of Dr. Martin Luther King. On National King Day, we encourage you, the Our Common Ground listeners, to live like a king. He was murdered by the irresponsibility of every politician from governors on down who has fed his constituents the stale bread of hatred and the spoiled meat of racism. He was murdered by the timidity of a federal government that can spend millions of dollars a day to keep troops in South Vietnam and cannot protect the lives of its own citizens seeking the right to vote.
we thank you for being here at our common ground with us tonight and hope that you and your family and community will remember the drum major for peace and justice, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, on the National King Day and commit to the Our Common Ground campaign to live like a king. Thank you for being with us and all of you in our chat room. And if you'd like to join our chatters in our chat room, you can at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Uh, we thank um, Sister Marpessa for being with us and Doc Don and Della Prosa. Uh, Alpha is there moderating this um, chat room, and we thank all of you uh, for listening. Our guest tonight, Alelia Bundles, and she is, you know, I'm always wanting to call you Alelia Walker. <laughs> <laughs> I love that's an easy that's an easy thing to do. I understand. <laughs> I mean, I I I have I I mean, I cannot tell you how much I have been into. I think history is so important. And the lessons of um historical figures that come out of our community and out of our experience and history. There's so much rich tapestry with golden threads running through it because mm-hmm. we learn not only from what from from the struggle that we as a people have had to undertake but we learn about perseverance and courage and persistence and madam cj walker's story is all about that um that you know, it, 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 and we can't miss those lessons. Well, yeah, you know, part of the reason that I like telling her story, I mean, it's, I know that it's inspirational for people, but part of my message also is that everybody's family has heroes and heroines. Everybody's family has somebody who was that person who said, we're going to make this better, we're going to move from this place to that place. We're going to start something new. We're going to have the courage to break the cycle or whatever it may be that's necessary for a family. So I love genealogy. I love encouraging people who think, oh, you know, because my family has some famous people that they think maybe it's a little bit easier. But, you know, Madam Walker was really an anonymous, unknown person for the first 38 years of her life. But there's a lot of material out there. And I think that's probably why the work that I do with the National Archives is, um, you know, it's so important to me. Now, you know, it's I get you can't really say it's a job because it's a president of a board as opposed to a salary. So, so this is part of my, um, you know, part of my real enjoyment and my volunteer life. Uh, I'm also a trustee at Columbia University, and I'm on the board of the Madame Walker Theater Center and on the Friends of the uh, Woodlawn Cemetery where Madam Walker is buried. But the but the work with the National Archives really speaks to my interest in the documents uh, of that make the democracy work, like the Charters of Freedom and the Emancipation Proclamation, which is there, uh, as well as the, the records of the census and military records, which really do tell the stories of uh, the families of America. And you, you actually asked what we were, would be doing with the yeah. National Archives. Mm-hmm. I have a, this is a three-year term where I'm president and chair of the board with some wonderful people like Ken Burns and Cokie Roberts and 
Michael Beschwas, the historian and former Michigan governor, Jim Blanchard. Uh, Charles Ogletree is on the board. John Payton, who's the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Riley Temple, who's an African-American attorney in Washington. And we really do try to celebrate all of these you know, great uh, documents of democracy. But a year from now, January 1st, 2013, will be the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. So I will keep you and your listeners posted on the big celebration that we will have wow. surrounding that. What a wonderful place, Alilia, to be in history. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I love I love the National Archives. Oh, wow. Now, you I know, mean, and I would love to see some of the listeners. I know you have listeners all over the country, but I will be speaking at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx on February 26th, uh, and I have some other speeches in Long Island University in March, but on my website on com, folks can see my calendar for public appearances, and I'd love to have folks come out and uh, they can buy a book on my website, and they can come hear some stories about the new book while I'm speaking over the next couple of months. Well, we're certainly going to be keeping our eye on you, and on uh, the Our Common Ground bookshelf is On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, and we are recommending to all of our listeners that you buy the book, read the book, buy another book, and give it to the children in your family. And your neighborhood um, library. <laughs> all of that. Thank you. Or call your neighborhood library. <laughs> this is how it's done, folks. Call your neighborhood library, your public library, and ask if the book, if they have the book. And if they do not have the book, then ask them for a request form so that they will get the book. Mm-hmm. Or also, donate the book, because a lot of libraries don't have much budget now, and people are donating donating ab- copies. So all of those things are good things to do. Absolutely, um, because... This is a this is a story that we should not lose, and we have lost so many of our stories. And for those of you who are out there and you have spectacular special people in your families or in your communities and their stories have not been told, then you need to organize how you write the story and get it published. Doesn't have to be big, right? Oh, yeah, it doesn't. No, have to be. exactly. I mean, everybody. Seriously, everybody's family. There's some stories to be found, and now with the internet and with Ancestry.com, you can really find a lot of interesting things. And, and really, really important is to interview, starting with the oldest living person in the family, and make sure you sit down with them. Now you can just take out your cell phone and do an interview. So don't yeah, miss those absolutely. opportunities. You'll really regret it if you do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just, I think that history has to become a living thing in our lives. Absolutely. That I mean, I, I look at um, how you have grown up in a family with this wonderful, wonderful legacy, and that you, you know, at the top of the the, the segment. Um, uh, one of the things when I listened to that interview with you is that it was your story to tell. Mm. 
Yeah, I, you know, I do really feel that. I mean, it is sort of what the universe was telling me. My mother um, died when I was right in the middle of the research paper I was doing in graduate school, but she gave me this mandate to tell the truth, to tell the story and to, you know, give Madam Walker all of her dimensions. And then my grandfather, who was still living, uh, lived until he was 92, really passed, it was like a griot, passing on the details of the family story. And he'd saved all of these photographs and letters and clothes to make sure that I would have them. And I'm forever grateful to, uh, you know, to the ancestors for putting me in the position as a journalist to be able to tell the story. Well, I am so grateful that for your spirit, um, you just have a wonderful spirit. I pick it up in, in reading the book, in visiting your website, uh, in, in reading you on Facebook and being your friend on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> so, we, uh, Facebook is wonderful. It really is. I know. Is. <laughs> I, you know, sometimes I have to knock it around and see if it still works. <laughs> it, it really is. Olivia Bundles, thank you so very much. And may you forever be blessed with the the spirit of storytelling and 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 community building because that that is what you're doing. Thank you so very much for being with us tonight. Thank you for honoring me and having me with you. And we'll and you'll certainly have to come back. Absolutely. When the new book to, is written, I'll be back. <laughs> that's right. The the what will be what is the title of the new book? The new book is called Joy Goddess, uh, Alelia Walker and the Harlem Renaissance, and we hope to finish it within the next few months so that it will be out next year. Wow. And you're talking to someone who would love, who, who would have loved to sit down and have a branch bourbon and a cigarette <laughs> with Langston Hughes. <laughs> Absolutely. Those so are great folks. So thank you so very much, and we look forward to coming back to Our Common Ground. Thank you. Thank you. Stay with us. You're listening to Our Common Ground. It is our first broadcast of this 2012 season at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, your host, and we're going to go to a tribute to Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. When we come back in the second page, We'll be meeting with Edward Wycock Williams to talk about the fallacy of food stamps, the GOP, and their race-baiting selves. We'll be right back. tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody. As I said to the group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with the pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. 
Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. Somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure, high, and clean. But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. As we approach the 2012 National King Day, our common ground encourages you to live like a king. Happy birthday, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. He was our drum major of peace, justice, and courage. Live like a king. Celebrate. National King Day, January 15th. NBC and NBC Universal 
and he is a former investment banker. He holds his BA in economics from Yale University and a master's in politics from the University of Oxford in England, and he has studied at the George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C. You can catch his political column, Elevating the Dialogue. It's featured on NBC's thegrio.com and the Washington Post online magazine, The Root. The name of the column is Elevating the Dialogue. And tonight we're going to be discussing with him his latest piece for Washington Post online mag, The Root, Exploring the GOP's Food Stamp Fallacy, which has been promoted by none other than Ginrich, Santorum, and company, and the kind of brand of race-baiting campaigns over the last two years by the GOP. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so very much for being with us. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, We will also be taking your calls at 347-838-9852. For those of you who are listening and you're listening on a smartphone device, you can call that number and sit right here and listen with us. Thank you for being with us. We invite you to join us on our sister network, TruthWorks Network. TruthWorks Network is the black radio collaborative live and call-in on the internet, right from our studios, the Truth Studios, right here at Blog Talk Radio, the finest Black Talk Radio interactive dialogue, Monday through Saturday. The Alpha Show, Saturday, 3 p.m., political talk, just damn, common sense, with Alpha, right out of Chicago, Global Village Voices with Peter E. Matthews, your world begins to change. 9 p.m. on Monday. Tuesday, Power Views, Reloading the Truth. The best of lectures, documentaries, and audio presentations. 10 p.m. Power Views. It's Listen and Learn Radio. Wednesday, Architects of Change with Elfin Dowling and Friends. 9 p.m. And Thursday and Friday, it's Swagger Talk Radio at Enter the Lion's Den with LDX and Information Man. It's TruthWorks Network. Join us in our community and find out more about this fine programming. TruthWorks.ning.com We know what to do on your radio. Our children are literally eating themselves to death. Many experts predict that this may be the first generation of children that doesn't live as long as their parents because of the problem of obesity. A quarter of American children don't exercise regularly. The average school-aged child watches four to six hours of TV every day, bombarded by commercials for fast food and junk. How you make these kinds of lifestyle changes in your kids is to make them yourself. Make the effort. Fight childhood obesity. A message from the Government of Canada. It's interesting. We have to get that message from the the Government of Canada. Uh, This is our common ground. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. (laughs) 
India Declare, real, raw, and right now. It's I Declare with India Declare. <laughs> small government, small government, small government, vote for me. Small government, small government, small government, vote for me. I don't want the government involved in anything unless you have a uterus. If you have a uterus, Ronnie, we are luck. Now, you tell me. The I Declare Show with India Declare. Blog Talk Radio, 11 a.m., Monday through Friday. It's your real, raw, right now. It's a cold and crazy world that's raging outside. But baby, me and all my girls are bringing on the fire. Show a little leg, gotta send me your chest. It's a life with a style of me. Our common ground, speaking truth to power, and Broadcasting bold, brave, black. 
We hope you'll stay with us for our second hour coming up. The race-baiting politics of the GOP. We'll be talking with Edward Wyckoff-Williams. Edward Wyckoff-Williams is an author, columnist, political analyst for MSNBC, and a former investment banker. In last week's The Root, he wrote a piece, The Food Stamp Fallacy. In it, he takes on the Gindridges, the Santorums, the Romneys. He writes in it that race baiting has only profiled and profited the Republican leaders who have sold it. Those at the bottom, and poor whites in particular, are left to pay the price. In our second hour, we'll be talking with Edward Wyckoff-Williams about race-baiting in American politics, the GOP in particular, and his piece on the fallacy of food stamps in the discourse. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. He did it now, trying to make it real compared to what... It's been one of Newt Gingrich's favorite attack lines against the man he wants to replace in the White House. More people are in food stamps today because of Obama's policies than ever in history. I would like to be the best paycheck president in American history. But for some years, Gingrich's campaign pitch struck a racial tone when he told a New Hampshire audience that black Americans in particular need to hear his message. If the NAACP invites me, I'll go to their convention and talk about why the African-American community should demand paychecks and not be satisfied with food stamps. Gingrich's implications say his critics that blacks are the prime beneficiaries of the government program in which low-income people are issued electronic benefit cards to help pay for their groceries. In fact, fewer than one in every three food stamp households are African-American, though 90% of black children benefit. And many others who do work still earn too little to feed their families. So if it was ever correct to say that the majority of people on the food stamps program uh, were just non-workers and people didn't want to work, it's, I don't think it was ever true, but it's certainly not true today. Gingrich said later he didn't mean to say that blacks are happy to settle with handouts rather than work. That every young American deserves the right to pursue happiness. Every young American deserves a chance to have a job. Every neighborhood in America deserves a chance to have paychecks instead of food stamps. But civil rights leaders say Gingrich's comments have an ominous subtext. He seems to be playing on the ignorance of the American people, interjecting a racially divisive, stereotypical position that somehow or another were lazy or don't want to work and can't do math is what all this seems to boil down to. Gingrich isn't the only Republican drawing objections to language with racial overtones. Here's Rick Santorum talking to an all-white audience this week about cutting medical payments for the poor. I don't want to, to make people's lives better by giving them somebody else's money. I want to give them the opportunity to go out and earn the money. That kind of appeal may have resonance with many white Republicans, but to black voters who still overwhelmingly support Obama, it's being received with suspicion. Tom Ackerman, Al Jazeera, Washington. Make it real compared to what?
become psychopathic in their quest to unseat this president. I'm hoping that this is Edward Wyckoff Williams. Good evening. You're on our common ground. Hello. Yes. You're on our you're on the air. Oh, great. Uh, glad to hear you. I've been holding for some time. I'm sorry. I thought you were just on one of our smartphone listeners. Oh, no. I thought you were taking calls. I uh, am this taking evening. calls. Oh, great. Thank you. I did mm-hmm. have a, a comment uh, in regards to your uh, first guest you had on the air a moment ago. You're uh, most I, welcome to make them. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Um, I did want to enlighten you and any listeners out there that uh, there is some additional information that uh, was not provided, and that is that the uh, company, the original company, still exists today. You mean the Walker Manufacturing Company? Yes, Madam C.J. Walker's Manufacturing Company, yes. The original company still exists today, and it still manufactures the original uh, hair oils and additional products. Um, the website is madamwalker.net, that's M-A-D-A-M-E-W-A-L-K-E-R.net. Are they you a representative a, of the manufacturing company? They have a toll-free phone number of... Excuse eight, me. I'm sorry. Are you, are you a representative of the manufacturing company? Yes, actually I am. Yes, and I can give you our toll-free number. It's 866 866- Five five two two eight three eight, and well, you can visit you, you can visit our website. Uh, the products are available. Um, I uh, wanted to. Uh, uh, I didn't get a chance to uh, inquire with Miss Bundles about. Uh, I know you all had mentioned about the book and and. Uh, you know, encouraging people to purchase it and things of that nature. Um, But there's some things in the book that, you know, aren't true when it comes to uh, her speaking about the company. Uh, Specifically on page 19, uh, she states that the original company closed its doors in the mid-1980s, and that's not false. The company was sold to our family. It was a stock asset sale in 1985, and we have continued to manufacture uh, and sell products since that time. Okay. uh, Excuse me. Does the company uh, have a a pamphlet? Yes, Uh, ma'am. Does it continue to be associated with the C.J. Walker uh, Family Collection and Foundation? No. No, excuse That's me. That's what you're when, telling us. No, what I'm telling you is that the original company, as Ms. Bundle states, the original company, the trustees petitioned the probate court in Indianapolis in 1985 to sell the company, all 1,000 shares of stock, of which Ms. Bundles and her family owned one-sixth share, of which they had to sign off on their shares of stock when the company was sold in 1985 to Mr. Raymond Randolph. He became the sole owner of 1,000 shares 
of stock in Madam C.J. Walker's original company, as well as all the original formula books, minutes books of the company, historical documents, and letters. And uh-huh. the original hair formulas have been continued to be manufactured it, since It sounds like, let me purchase. interrupt you, it sounds like that was something that would have been a good conversation for you to have with Alelia uh, Bundles. But I've got to well, move I mainly on my guest to, has arrived. I mainly uh, wanted my, to enlighten you and your yeah. readers and put that information out there. Miss Bundles is aware of this information. She's been aware for some time uh, why she insisted on printing a book that uh, spreads false information and continues to promote it. I can't answer that, and obviously well, that's something she, that you're, uh, you're going to have to address with her. I, I was mainly she is concerned. A public, she is a public figure. She does have a website, and I've got to move on to and, my and my And I, I, I appreciate uh, all of your time. That's why I say I've been on hold for some time, and, and during your program you had mentioned several times that you were going to the call to the line to take calls. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I, I never did were, get. Yeah. I never did. Your number comes up. Your number comes up as a one 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 number, and I thought you were simply listening. No, I I was trying to. Now I I would encourage you when you you do have the time to 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 at least visit our website. I don't have the time right now, ma'am. I've got to go. My guest has arrived for my second uh, segment. Well, hopefully your listeners will be um, more receptive to the information and, uh, you know, discover the the truth for themselves. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, You're quite welcome. Bye-bye. And joining us right now is Edward Wickock Williams. Thank you, sir, for being with us and being (laughs) kind and patient. It is a pleasure I to be with you. I tell you, these internets will work against you every time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing is, the good thing is, you have passionate listeners out there, and you've got people who are interested in talking about things that um, that most radio hosts uh, don't want to touch on for whatever reason. So, um, I'm grateful, despite um, d- despite the uh, passion, perhaps uh, in the wrong direction, that you've got people that actually do, that actually do care. So. It's good to be with you. Well, it's good to have you, and before we we start out, I just want to say to you how much I enjoy your commentary, both at The Root, The Griot, and at MSNBC. Um, I mean, you were tearing them up doing health care. I mean, I was in love with you. Come marry me and take me to Madagascar. <laughs> well, thank you, sweetheart. And, I um, mean, and, and then the investment banker jumped out on you when <laughs> when Wall Street came rolling around for the tarp. I said, yes. this boy is going to blow them out of the, out of the waters. Listen, yes. explain to us who these aliens are and what planet they came from and what do they do when they're not campaigning. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. I'm so glad that you you have the, uh, the the veracity of mind to understand what the GOP has been doing. I think ever since uh, November 5th, 2008, um, when they realized that this country, the face of this country, was changed forever. Um, there has been a war raged against black and brown people. 
and uh, President Obama has taken a great deal of hits, but he's still standing, and I'm grateful to be one of the voices that uh, that is able to tell the truth and has a platform to do it. Um, so this latest piece that um, that has gotten so much attention uh, that's now been on uh, Slate and The Root for, I guess, about uh, five days now, um, is another example in uncovering the lies that have been told um, about black people in general, uh, but specifically when it comes to sort of statistical analysis. So we see, you know, um, Rick Santorum when he was in New Hampshire saying that he doesn't want to help black people by giving them other people's money. And then uh, Newt Gingrich following up. You mean up, he said blah people. Oh, you blah people. Wrong. I'm sorry. He said blah people. Because <laughs> we live in blah America now. I know. And I'm, I'm, and I'm proud to be a blah American. So, so that, there's him. And then Newt Gingrich following up with um, he would go to the NAACP to tell uh, African Americans that they should demand paychecks instead of food stamps. This is a part of a narrative um, that has been going on for decades, uh, which is basically to frame poverty and specifically welfare dependency in a black face. Um, and one of the things that I, because um, obviously, like you said, you know, I've been abroad for a while, and I've only been doing political commentary now for the last almost two years. Um, I like to get to the bottom of things and talk in real numbers. So you can create whatever um, whatever media uh, colloquialism you want, but the truth of the matter is if the numbers aren't there to back it up, then there's no substance. And so one of the things that I wanted to do was just go simply to the census and go to the Department of Agriculture um, stats and numbers to show that, in fact, um, one of the things I thought was just so powerful, that of the 46 million Americans living in poverty uh, in, in the 2010 census, 31 million of those people were white. Um, America, yes, has a problem with disparity with respect to African Americans, and has always had that problem because they were black people were enslaved here, and uh, legalized discrimination in this country against us only ended 40 years ago. So of course you would expect that a slightly larger percentage of black people would be poor, but the fact that the vast majority of people who are poor in this country are white goes to show that actually African Americans have done very well, despite all the challenges against them. And when, when we talk about black poverty, people love to talk about food stamps and stuff, but the overwhelming majority of, what, of, of people on food stamps and receiving health care benefits are white people, and they represent a forgotten face of poverty because when you turn on your television – and, and when you're looking at the news or, or anything in the media or, or television or, um, or, or film, black face or a black face is always painted on poverty. And so as I stripped through the numbers and as I laid them out, I discovered that there was a story that wasn't being correctly told. And I'm really glad that there's been such a wonderful reaction both on the, um, uh, on the negative and the positive side. There are a lot of people who are so happy about me talking about these things and then other people who are viscerally angry. Why? Because the myth that, um, that really, really came into play in Ronald Reagan of this black welfare queen has no substance to back it up. 
and it is time, despite all of African Americans' challenges, to understand that we are not the face of the bottom. We actually do represent the progressive. We represent a growing middle-class um, dynamic. And despite all the continued challenges we face, um, we are as reflective as a community of the American dream as the, as the brown people currently residing in the White House. And to that end, um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about after 200 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow, um, being hosed down in the streets, being denied opportunities, yet 80% of us are not in poverty. So how about we give, how about we give a new face to a different kind of agenda, a different kind of progressive um, reality, and that is that actually African Americans um, have been doing and are doing extremely well. Well, you know, Edward, one of the things that really struck me was that this kind of nonsense, I mean, Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum a strange kind of human alien being. But this kind of stuff stuck, that it became a story that your piece, uh, the food stamp fallacy, mm -hmm. it took that to get people to really talk about they're lying. Yes, yes. And, you and, know and they're why. intentionally lying intentionally lying. You know why? It's partly because, and I hate to say this, but African Americans have bought into what I would call the slave master's lie. And I think that's partly because um, in too many um, inner city areas, we do see a great deal of lack and want and struggle. And so I think it's very easy when that's being reinforced by the media in every, in every news outlet. Um, to begin to believe it. But when you – there are a couple of things. So one of the things that I think that you really find uh, problematic, and I do too, is the fact that people like Newt and Rick Santorum can be so bold in, in spreading a lie, that they can be so bold as to even talk in racial terms in a way that is clearly, um, clearly uh, offensive, just so deeply, deeply racist, but yet they somehow are able to get off on it. In the same way that, you know, Ron Paul is able to dismiss um, the, the contents of newsletters uh, that came out 20 years ago under his name, it's as if there's a certain type of racism in America which is easily excusable. But the truth of the matter is, and we both know, and I'm sure all the listeners know, that if Barack Obama had published newsletters 20 years ago under his name, um, basically referring to white people as animals, there would be no way that he could be ever considered qualifiable um, as, as, as a presidential candidate. But, but these passes are given to white men. If, if Barack Obama ever came out and said white people need to learn how to, um, how to ask the government for paychecks instead of food stamps, I can't even imagine the backlash uh, there, but for some reason, for Newt Gingrich, it's oh, it's a gas. Oh, it's a, it's something that can just easily be um, explained away. And so, a part of that is that 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 narrative has become a greater meta narrative, which has now become acceptable in American culture. And it doesn't it doesn't take just 
um, African Americans intelligent and educated and using statistical data to, to talk about it the way we are and to address these issues in, in a really intelligent way by sort of just uh, uh, taking up the underpinnings from under them. But it also takes, um, I think, brown people in general to stand up and say, this is not something we will tolerate, nor is it something that's actually true. And so I think it's only now with an African-American in the White House that we actually have, um, we actually almost have a reason to, to address these issues from a new angle. Because before, I think we've been fighting an uphill battle. Now we are looking down. And we are, we are addressing it from a completely different perspective, and I think that that's a wonderful thing. I think that this is, this is the future, but to that end, it's still going to take a great deal of time to sort of dismantle. Um, it's sort of like dismantling a pyramid, you know, um, because that's how strong these images of us as impoverished have been, and that's how long-lasting they have been. They've become a part of the fabric of the American political discourse. And to that end, it's going to, in the same way it took years to create it, it's going to take years to dismantle it. Let me run um, a theory, uh, a crazy theory. I was sitting in the sun in Florida last week at noon, <laughs> and I got a little fever, uh, and something crazy came across my mind. Mm-hmm. One, is, and, and it was that Santorum and... Gendrich are now being used to loosen up the field for for Mittens Mitt, Mitt Romney, mm. uh, who was my the, not my governor because um, he didn't matter to me, but he was the governor of the state that I live in. Yeah. Um. And 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 he really did not matter. He did not count. Um. And brought no leadership. Um, here in Massachusetts, and, and that was something that ran across my mind because, just as you 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 so eloquently uh, presented, in America you can't be crazy and certifiable and be a candidate for president of the United States of America unless you're brain dead and you're George Bush and everybody else talks for you. Oh. <laughs> So that's my theory that that there is something going on here that got rid of and, and and that and you believe that King Gingrich and people like Paul and Santorum are being used to sort of make Romney seem more palatable. Thank you. Yes, they're um, making the by, way by they're being paving. so extreme by being right. so extreme. You know what? Right. I think I think you've got a real point there. Um, that, though, we would be moving into sort of like conspiracy theory type uh, areas. Well, I, not so of, much as a, as a conspiracy, but as a strategy. Hmm, okay. um, I mean, okay. I know a lot of, cons- I mean, I worked in the private sector in high tech um, for, for years, for 20, 30 years. And I know a lot of conservative people who support the the, the Republican Party, I know people who have been in Democratic administrations who were Republican, who were moderate in their thinking about social and economic issues, and they are not crazy. These folks, Edward, are 
Yeah, they're, they're, they're really out there. Well, well, the interesting thing, Janice, though, is that we have seen a rise of that kind of, I would just say, far-right conservatism, um, if we were going to talk about it in sort of general parlance. Um, it's, it's a far-right conservative rhetoric and agenda that's being expressed, and we've seen the rise of that with the rise of the Tea Party. So, um, and, and I know you will love this because of the same way you have that theory I have I have a similar um, horizontally aligned one, which is this: that uh, what happened between 1866 and 1877 with the um, what was it called the the Great the Great Compromise um, is happening now. And so you had the end of uh, slavery, and you had um, a backlash in the South, which gave which gave rise to the KKK and Jim Crow, which was um, in historical terms called the uh, Great White Redemption. So white people saw black people in Congress. They saw them in the Senate. They saw them um, building lives in communities and, and circles of power. And that was met with a particular kind of violence, and the message of that violence was let us take our country back. And what you have seen in the last three years, um, since I would say November 2008, is a, is a duplicate response um, or a duplicative response. Um, and so you basically have people who feel like power belongs to them and that that power has a racial component because now there is um, some quote-unquote other, some alien, some person who they require to show his papers, literally, um, in order to justify um, his role in his new role in government. And I think that to that very end, there's now a widespread strategy at play to ensure that what happened in November 2008 doesn't happen again for at least a very, very, very long time. The way to do that is to delegitimize this president, right, and to create um, a scenario, i.e., to make sure the government does not or the the economy does doesn't do well, uh, which is why we've seen such obstinance and incalcitrance in in the uh, Republican Congress to ensure that everything is being done to undermine um, the case that this man is a capable leader and that. Um, and that he actually is a successful leader. And so I think that I wouldn't put it past the GOP leadership to do exactly what you were suggesting. And I think that there is a real argument for that. What is, what is so sad, however, is that couldn't they have found a better candidate? Like, if they, if, you know what I'm saying? Like, why, why put all your eggs in a Romney basket when that is perhaps the weakest Basket. It's like leaving a grocery store carrying a single plastic bag you know has a hole in it and, and, the, and, and the groceries are, uh, are spilling over. You would think that someone would have the good sense to go back and say, please double bag this. Well, well, you know, the thing is that you've got an American public, uh, uh, an American voting, voting uh, Republican voters uh, respect poor poor. The, the average people 
who mm-hmm. are Republicans, they respect people who are have money. That's yeah. one of the attractions uh, for Mitt Romney. On the other end of the spectrum, and this is the duality of that strategy in my mind, is that you've got the power block in the GOP who want nothing to do, anybody but Romney. Mm-hmm. But and 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 here is where you where I think the public becomes confused because you've got Newt Gingrich who is essentially self-destructing. Yeah. You had literally. Rick Perry who self-destructed. Yeah, you he had, literally imploded. He just imploded. <laughs> yes. You you had Herman Cain, who was a joke and and just another uh, example of. Oh my God, he he's probably the worst. But go ahead, we can we can talk about him. For I mean, another you hour. know, I kept saying I got some black people that I help uh, help you out. Get rid of him, and I'll tell you who those people are because they will do a lot better than he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we even had Ginger White on the show because I was trying to figure out who is this man. Yeah. <laughs> but, Where did Sambo come from? <laughs> exactly. And 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 then you've got people who have been in the media, who are considered benchmarks for commentary, like Chris Matthews and some other people, and they actually are taking these people seriously. seriously. What is wrong with them? Well, well, what is well, what's happening here? So when you talk about sort of progressive radio like this show and you talk about um, progressive television um, journalists, a part of why someone like uh, Chris Matthews has to take um, a Herman Cain or Rick Perry uh, seriously is that we have seen the GOP nominate and then go on to elect um, equally uh, inappropriate candidates. And I think in our lifetime, um, George W. Bush is perhaps the best. And I think it's really interesting, particularly in light of the fact that he actually did not win uh, the 2000 election, um, uh, if you just look at it from yeah. a miracle perspective. We have to have did, underscore that. You're absolutely we have to, right. Yeah, we have to explain how the Electoral College works and how elections can be possibly manipulated or stolen, as a lot of people believe it was in Florida in 2000, and how a conservative court, which we still have, um, could elect a candidate that most people would think just it would not be possible. Um, and so it's still quite possible that the powers that be in this country could create a political storm that swings President Barack Obama out of office. And to that end, we could very well end up in a, a plutocratic government um, with someone like Rick Perry or um, or even a Michelle Bachman, as crazy as that seems, um, if she was still in the race. We could still see these kinds of people at the helm. That is not that far out of the realm of possibility. We just had Absolutely. eight years of Bush, and we had um, eight years of uh, two unjustified wars that we could not pay for, and we've now lived with the economic results of making such poor decisions, right? And so at the end of the day, they are covering uh, politics in a way that is real 
not in a way that is imagined. And so I think we have to give them a bit more credit for that. In terms of, though, I think your greater point, that how did this come to be? This came to be because this is what happens when I think the public are either misinformed or or easily manipulated. And so a part of one of the things that I wanted to, and I think you got this about my piece, The Food Stamp Fallacy, was to show how not just that white people represented the majority of the poor and the welfare dependent, but that since the um, Southern strategy of Nixon, uh, which basically went into full gear under Reagan um, in his ability to uh, create what they called Reagan Democrats, which is essentially to convince poor whites, um, especially in swing states like Ohio and Pennsylvania, to vote against their own economic interests by using uh, race as a divisive issue in our politics, um, there are a great deal of people, particularly white people, in the lower middle classes and working classes and even middle classes who vote Republican because they actually believe that these people have their socially conservative interests at heart namely that they will um, favor the wealthy and the white and create opportunities for white people in general. The truth of the matter is that doesn't happen, that actually the Republicans are pursuing an agenda that purely helps the wealthy, um, regardless of race, but, um, but they promote a rhetoric that then gets poor whites on their side for some reason, and that has been a strategy of the Republican Party for decades now. So a part of the problem there is that by using that strategy and making it effective, we do have an imbalance in our electoral process where you literally have people going to the polls in droves because, like, in 2010 in the midterm elections, they had created a monster. The Republicans had successfully created this monster of an Obama who wasn't an American citizen, who was out to help black people over white people, who um, was probably a secret Muslim, and who was in league with al-Qaeda. That's the message that you have Fox News selling to people every day. And you have um, poor whites buying into that rhetoric. And so that's really the, that's the wedge issue that you hit on so brilliantly, Janice, which is essentially how does this come to be? Well, it comes to be through a strategy that has been so well-defined and refined for decades, which is essentially to encourage people to vote against their own interests. Well, you know, Edward, it, 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 as, you, as you summarize it, it seems as though we have this perfect storm. On yeah. one hand, we've got the ignorant, the misguided, the misinformed, the underinformed, and the lied to voters. On the other hand, we've got the ignorant um, <clears throat> and obstinate, uh, arrogant, oh. being touted by the corporatists yes. in the in the Republican Party. Those in actual power. Yes. And yes. And, and it's it's coming together. Yes. My my I, I we we've only got a little bit of time and you've got to come back. You know, I'm gonna do the little thing like they do on the on the um Bill Marshall. I'm gonna have a little panel. Uh and I'm gonna do that. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. We've got to do I, that, Dennis. I mean, you know, Bill Maher had um Herman Cain on his show last night, and he didn't eviscerate him, and I was just livid 
but yeah. uh, we're going to certainly have to have you back. We're going to we're getting ready to go into this war uh, mm-hmm. against um, black people um, up until uh, November on this show, and we'll certainly have to have you come in. We're going to go back to a Monday through Friday schedule because it's time. But this perfect storm is coming together. And my question to you as we kind of close down this interview, and this certainly is not enough time uh, with you, is to ask you about who the Democratic National Committee, the White House, the Obama campaign advisors, the the Plofts and the whoever's and the Michelle Obamas, who is going to put up the sandbags on this storm? Mm. You know, that's, that's a difficult one. I, in my writing, have been trying to um, encourage the Democratic establishment, um, both the DNC and um, the, the far-left progressives, um, to create the kind of coalition that you talk about, that perfect storm, but do it from the left um, and from the center left, uh, and, and, and to then empower even Barack Obama uh, to be more populist, which we've seen in our president, um, particularly in light of the um, push toward the American Jobs Act, which began last September, and I think his own realization uh, sometime last year that Republicans simply were not interested in working with him um, and were literally just hell-bent on destroying his presidency. I think with that revelation came a new type of veracity um, and, and a new resolve, uh, which we are seeing um, uh, on the rise even now. And I think it's actually even reflective of uh, First Lady Michelle Obama being able to be honest about the fact that um, people have tried to frame her as the quote-unquote angry black woman. I think we would have never seen that, that level of honesty from either of them had they not come to an impasse, I think, with mm-hmm. the far right, where they realized, right. wow, these people really are just trying to take yep. us down. So, yep. so I think Well, I've, I think what, I've got what this your new banner, is, and I'm going to send you one. And the okay. new banner says, hope and a can of whoop-ass. <laughs> we need to put that on. Obama 2012 t-shirt and have that yes. sold online and then your your logo and website and and everything <laughs> along the bottom and like little hats, you know what I mean? Our yeah, common ground hats. Right. Like because, because that's, that's what really, it's going to take. That's, that's what, what it's going to take. It's going to take a revolution of the mind to get people to one talk about the real issues and to address them head on. I think perhaps President Obama has been reluctant to do that. Uh, in a lot of ways to his credit, partly because he actually is a believer. He believes in the American dream. He believes in conciliation. He believes in working together, um, bringing races together. I mean, this is a man of um, of both African-American and and white ancestry, ancestry, and I think that there is something beautiful about that hope and that change. But the truth of the matter is uh, Republicans have tried to frame our politics in black and white. And, and, and when it comes to the battlefield, you've got to pick up a weapon and fight. And so I think that you are doing an excellent job, Janice, of, well, of bringing you, truth. So well, thank you I just want it. you to carry this message 
to your friends out there, and the message is there is pain in multiculturalism. Mm. <laughs> and we are seeing the evidence of it. And I think that the reality is that politics in America is ugly. Yeah. And if we had at some point, two weeks after this man was was inaugurated, understood the 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 role that race plays in this point in in history with his election, we would be so much better off. Yes. Yes. Well, I am glad that years. we, but the great thing is, Janice, we live in an America where now people like you have a platform, have a voice. People like me and you can partner together and, 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 and share that message. And there are thousands out there listening, and those people are voters, and they care. And, and guess what? Um, we still have the power of the vote, yeah. and we have a growing Latin America um, in America and those people are brown and beautiful and with us. And so, and let's let's take it back in 2012. I believe that we can. We can. Edward Wickoff Williams, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, don't be surprised if I call you and say you gotta uh, come host this show for a couple of nights. Excellent, excellent, darling. <laughs> I look forward to it, Janice. Thank you for giving you, me the time. And you keep the medal. You keep your foot on the medal. Uh, excellent. I will, Angel. So. God and, bless. And thank. Thank you so much. Thank that you was so much. Uh, MSNBC political analyst and columnist at the Grio and the Root, Edward Wickock Williams. Remember that name. You're listening to Our Common Ground, and as we come to a close, we want to let you know that we appreciate your listenership. Please join us in our community forum uh, when you. When you go there, you will be able to get our newsletter, to read some of our writing, to look at our magazine, Our Common Ground Omnibus Online, and Scribbling Race, Our Common on Common Ground uh, at Paper.ly. We publish uh, weekly on both of those sites. You can join us and know more about what we do at OurCommonGround.com. We uh, are on Facebook and uh, Our Common Ground with Janice Graham, and we are on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter. Go like us on Facebook. Uh, Twitter is hashmark Janice OCG. Thank you so much for being with us. We want to thank our guest, Alilia Bundle who is the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam Madam C.J. Walker, and she is the new chair and president of the Foundation of the National Archives. We also want to thank our brother, Edward Wickock Williams, for being with us and sharing with us some of his political insight. Don't forget to join Global Village Voices each Monday night at 9 p.m. with Peter E. Masters. And we thank you so very much for being with us, and we'll see you at Global Village Voices at TruthWorks on Monday, 9 p.m. The Alpha Show, 3 p.m. on Saturdays. It's just damn politics. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. 
You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend.